Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. I want to look today at Psalm 105, that just the Psalms themselves are just an amazing book. It's amazing that God has given us, written by the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, this book that gives us this picture of God, the language that it gives us, the vocabulary that it gives us. It gives us a kind of imagination and words that appeal to our emotions And they help us to know God and understand life in God's universe. I honestly don't know how you can have a relationship with God without the book of Psalms, without meditating and praying through the Psalms. That's why I'm committed to this podcast, because I think it's a big thing missing in a lot of people's lives that make their Christian lives confusing because they don't really know how to have a relationship with God. They think the Christian life is just a matter of beliefs, having the right beliefs, and that's not what it is. Jesus quoted from the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book, and he quoted them often in conversations, and he quoted them from memory. The Psalms were written a thousand years before most of the Psalms were written a thousand years before Jesus was born. So for 3,000 years, God's people have been going to the Psalms to have a deeper relationship with him, to walk with him, to bury themselves, so to speak, in the Psalms and to emerge knowing God and understanding life with God. And what makes the language of the Psalms great is that it gives us a picture of God. It it gives us pictures of life with God. We learn from the Psalms how to think and act in reference to the reality of God in our lives. They provide a vocabulary for living a Godward life, a vertical life of looking up and having this life that, that where the transcendence and the glory and the beauty of God begins to permeate our life and change our perspective of life to give us perspective of life and to give us a vocabulary to articulate what is the biblical perspective of life and the reality of life inside God's universe. And the Psalms were inspired by God himself. Remember, Jesus said that David had written the Psalms by the Holy Spirit. And so they show us who God is and they expand our view of God and they, and they expand our view of life. They, they broaden our minds and our hearts in a unique way that only the Psalms can do. So when we come to Psalm 105, I think it, it, there's a lot of questions we can ask. But one question I think that we have to ask when we come to Psalm 105 is, what makes you, what makes your relationship with God secure? What makes you secure in your relationship with God? What's that security based on? Is it based on your level of faith is your security and your relationship with God based on your level of obedience? Because the problem is neither of those things are stable enough to have security in your relationship with God. I think our relationship with God has to be based on something more sure than either the level of our faith or the level of our obedience. Absolutely, faith and obedience 
are essential in our relationship with God, but they are not the basis of our relationship. They're needed, and they're the means by which we live out our relationship with God. But Psalm 105 gives us the basis, and we'll get there in a minute. The first 15 verses of Psalm 105 are actually the same as what we read of David in 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22. So even though Psalm 105 doesn't say it's a Psalm of David, it's a Psalm of David according to 1 Chronicles 16, 8 through 22. And verse 1 starts, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the I am. Call upon his name. So again, when the Bible talks about God's name, it's talking over and over about God's name, the name Yahweh, the I am, this mysterious name that God gave to Moses and that God gave to Moses to tell the Israelites and that God told Moses, this is my name forever and ever. And there's this mysterious element to God just saying, I am the I am. In other words, he is the one who inhabits eternity. He is forever. He is the one who is and was and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the I Am who is always eternally in the present tense, infinite past, infinite future. He inhabits eternal and he is independent. He is eternal and he is self-existent. He has no need for anything in his life. He is completely self-sufficient. He is the I am. He needs nothing. He is eternally self-sufficient. He is infinite and infinitely perfect, limitless in every way, inconceivable in his existence. We can't even begin to understand it, indescribable in his essence of who he is. We have this mystery of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that we really can't explain. God is fully known only by himself because an infinite mind is the only mind that could possibly fully comprehend God. In his infinite wisdom, he cannot ever make a mistake. He is always right. He is always true. He cannot be deceived. He cannot be tricked. And from his infinite goodness, he can do nothing that is not eternally just and righteous and perfect and loving and kind and good. He is the I am always infinitely present with us right now, present with you, 100% present with you without being any less present anywhere else in the universe. Everything depends upon him for its existence. All of life depends upon him every moment for its life. He gives life to everything. And when he decides to take life away, it dies, whatever it is, you, me, any other living thing in the universe. So when David says, oh, give thanks to the I am, call upon his name. This is the mystery that first comes to our mind, but it has to paint our picture of God, the I am, this eternal, infinite, self-existent, infinitely righteous, infinitely wise, infinitely good, infinitely loving, infinitely perfect, infinitely present. Right away, we call upon his name 
and our mind is expanded beyond our ability to understand, and yet already we are thinking thoughts about God that are greater than any other thoughts we can ever have about anything or anyone else. Suddenly our lives explode with meaning and purpose, and our mind expands to the infinite and the eternal and the perfect. So verse 3, glory in his holy name, to glory in his holy name, that we would have this sense of his holy name, the I am, and his glory and his beauty and his transcendent, infinite beauty, infinite transcendence, infinite glory, infinite goodness, infinite perfection, and that we would glory in his glory. This is all taking place, of course, in our mind as we're praising God, as we're worshiping him. Our lives are being infused with this emotion of the glory of God and the presence of God, the infinite essence of God as the I am, his holy name, his radiant name, his name of splendor and majesty and light and beauty and transcendence. And we give thanks to the I am and we call upon his name. So verse 3, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord, who seek the I am, rejoice. Joy is the very essence of who God is. His joy is infinite. And when we come in contact with the I am, we begin to experience his joy as our joy. Remember, Jesus said, I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. I have come that you may have life and may have it abundantly. And this happens when we seek the I am. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Seeking is giving thanks. Seeking is calling upon his name. Seeking is glorying in his holy name and rejoicing in who he is. Seeking him is an issue of the heart. Walking with God is an issue of our heart, glorying in his holy name, rejoicing in his holy name, giving thanks to him, calling upon his name, and having the reality of his name fill our hearts with joy. Verse 4, seek the Lord, seek the I am and his strength, seek his presence continually. Do you catch what this is saying? We're seeking the presence of the I am who is present with us continually, but we are in our minds focusing on the reality of his presence. We're filling our mind with the truth. We're perceiving the truth with the eyes of our heart, Paul says in Ephesians 1.18. We're using our imagination to see something that is real, but that we can't see. The presence of the I am continually with us, continually in every single situation, infinitely present with us. Verse 5, remember, remember the wondrous works that he has done. We've talked about those wondrous works as we've gone through the Psalms and other parts of the Bible, God becoming human in the person of Jesus in order to bring this purpose he has for humanity, to restore this purpose he has for this world in the body of Jesus dead on the cross, breaking through the other side of death, taking our sin upon him so that he could give us his life. And in breaking through the other side of death and rising from the dead, he has already begun the new creation that we will be a part of and that this earth will be a part of in bodies that just like him ate after he rose from the dead, embraced after he rose from the dead 
said, talked and had community with people after he rose from the dead. I don't understand the whole walking through locked doors kind of thing, but there's an element of dimensions that we don't understand when it comes to God's universe. But a resurrected body has already begun in Jesus, and this is the resurrection that we're going to have in him. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. In other words, God is infinitely just, infinitely right, infinitely perfect, infinitely righteous, infinitely good, and he is going to remove evil from this world and restore it to the glory and the beauty and the goodness and the rightness and the righteousness and the love that reflects perfectly who he is. When Jesus did his miracles, when he raised his hand and calmed the storm, when he walked on the water, when he gave sight to the blind, when he rose people from the dead, from the grave, when he restored hearing to those who couldn't hear, when he helped those who had been crippled all their lives to walk again, simply by telling them to, simply by telling them to pick up their mat and walk. The miracles that he did show Number one, the brokenness that we have now and what this restoration will look like in our resurrection, this physical restoration that we will experience in the kingdom of God. Verse seven, he is the Lord, our God. He is the I am our God. This phrase that he is our God. He has committed himself to be our God. He has committed himself as part of his relationship with us to be our God and everything that that means, our protection, our belonging, our security, our sustained life, the provision of goodness, the provision of rightness and love, the presence of love, the presence of beauty, of glory. He is the I am, our God. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever. Now, here's now we're getting to the answer to our question. What makes your relationship with God secure? What's that security based on? And the answer is it's based on God's covenant promise. He remembers his covenant forever, verse 8 says. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. That's a poetic euphemism for forever because it just said he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. This word covenant in the Bible means a solemn oath that is to the death. In other words, if, if I break this promise let it be unto my own death. And of course, that's what God has guaranteed this covenant with, was by his own death. In the Old Testament, God made a covenant with Noah to preserve the earth forever. God has this eternal purpose for the earth. He made a covenant with Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore, that he would be the father of many nations, that all peoples on earth would be blessed through his offspring, that he would inherit the land that God was giving him. It really is amazing to think that thousands of years ago, God made this covenant promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have more descendants than the sand on the beaches of all the earth, and that he would, through his offspring, all the nations on earth would be blessed. 
This is back when Israel, the Israelites, when this was written, were just a small tribal group in Palestine. The idea that they would have a global reach is ridiculous to think. And yet that's exactly what has happened 2,000 years later. And if that promise has already happened, Christianity is by far the most multi-ethnic human movement in human history. That promise has come true. It's coming true. It's the scope of the gospel. It's the scope of God's covenant with Abraham. And if that's already something we can see happening, how much more the rest of it? God's covenant was this divine assurance, this solemn oath that God will realize his purpose for creation for this earth and for humanity by fully establishing his kingdom on earth, that we would reign with him, that we would oversee his creation created in his image and all the dignity and the glory and the beauty and the love that that means for us. His covenant ultimately encompasses the whole earth, and God said in Genesis 17:7 that it would be an everlasting covenant. He reaffirmed that covenant to Isaac and to Jacob. And of course, Paul the apostle says that those who have faith in Christ, the ultimate offspring of Abraham, are those who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul makes that exact point in Romans chapter 4, read it for yourself. In Galatians chapter 3, read it for yourself. And the ultimate covenant promise that God says is that I will be their God and they will be my people. God has committed himself to be our God and committed himself that we would be his people. And the New Testament teaches that all of these covenants that God made in the Old Testament were realized and fulfilled in Christ. And so in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, Zechariah was saying of Jesus, he says that he is the fulfillment of the promise to our fathers to remember. I'm reading in verse in Luke 1, 72. He is the fulfillment of our promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This he is speaking specifically to his son, John the Baptist. He says, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercies of our God, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This has always been the covenant promise that would be fulfilled in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the covenant promises of God in the Old Testament find their yes in Christ the ultimate offspring of Abraham. That's exactly what it says. The very first verse in the Gospel of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when Jesus is giving the Lord's Supper and he's talking about forgiveness and the covenant, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This was the covenant foretold by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 1, or excuse me, Jeremiah 31, 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each 
his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the, the Lord, declares the I am. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the eternal inheritance that we have as believers in Christ, as co-heirs with Christ. This incredible promise that is still yet to come, that we experience now as we seek the Lord and rejoice in Him and walk with Him, and He is our God and He is present with us always, and we are His people, but it is also our future ultimate hope. So Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it says in Revelation 22.5, speaking of those in the kingdom of God, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the covenant God made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and is given to us, fulfilled through the ultimate offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God calls an everlasting covenant, what it says right here in Psalm 105.10, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Verse 9, the covenant that he made with Abraham. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever. Verse 7, He is the Lord our God. Verse 11 says, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Now, of course, this land of Canaan, this land that we call Palestine today, that was always meant to be a metaphor of the larger promise of the restored earth. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. He says this, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And then he talks about in verse 16, therefore the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. And hope against hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Paul is saying that those who have faith in Christ, if you read the rest of the chapter, are the offspring of Abraham, because that is the faith that makes us part of God's covenant community. It's not about just having our sins forgiven. It's about being part of this covenant, part of this kingdom of God, part of this people who inherit the world with the promise of Abraham and God will be our God and we will be his people and we will live in his glory forever. And this really helps me because to me, you know, I never seem to have enough faith and my obedience is always conflicted at best. 
I don't think I ever do anything with perfect obedience. I always have some selfish motive in there somewhere, and my heart is always conflicted. So when I read Psalms like Psalm 105, it reminds me that God remembers his covenant forever. This is based upon his promise, and his covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Christ said, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood is the guarantee of the covenant. Christ came to guarantee the covenant. The covenant comes by believing in Christ Christ being the name for king, that Christ would be my king, and I want to be in his kingdom forever. I want to do what this psalm says. I want to give thanks to him. I want to call upon his name. I want to glory in his holy name and have my heart seek the Lord and to rejoice in the Lord and to seek the Lord and seek his presence continually, to remember his wondrous works that he has done, his miracles that he is the Lord, my God, and he remembers his covenant forever. The covenant that he made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, as an everlasting covenant that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And those who have faith in Christ are descendants of Abraham, children of Abraham, children of the covenant. Our relationship with God is secure because of God's covenant solemn oath. And so we pray, God, we seek you. We want to rejoice in your presence. We seek your strength and we seek your presence continually because you are the I am who is infinitely present with us continually. You're always present with me. You're always surrounding me. You are continually with me. And I can know this with the eyes of my heart. I can know this by believing your word because your words are trustworthy and true, because you are infinitely true and infinitely faithful and infinitely trustworthy, because you are the I am. So when you speak by your Holy Spirit in your word, I choose to believe it, and I seek your presence continually. I rejoice that you are the I am, and I rejoice that you have made this covenant forever. You remember your covenant promise this everlasting covenant. And I want to be in this covenant. I want to look to Jesus as the one who guarantees this covenant. And through Jesus, I want to enter this covenant family, this covenant promise that you would be my God and that I would be part of your people and that you would wipe every tear from my eyes and that I will be in your presence forever. The dwelling place of God is now with us and I want to be there. And so I give thanks to you You are the I am, and I give thanks to you, and I call upon your name right now. I call upon your name that saves. I call upon your name that is eternal. You inhabit eternity, and you give me eternal life. You have created me with eternity in my heart and soul because you want me to live forever in your universe, and I call upon your name. I give praise to you, and I worship you, and I glory in your holy name. You are the I am forever, and I want to seek you. I want to give thanks to you. I want to glory in you and rejoice in you and seek your presence continually. I want to remember your wondrous works that you have done. I remember what your scripture says, that you created me in your image to exercise dominion over your creation. I want to remember 
that even though that was lost in the sin of Adam and the sin of Eve and my sin, that Jesus has come as the perfect human and he has in his body broken death and he has risen from the dead and his rising from the dead has given me already this new creation in my heart by your Holy Spirit. Already this new creation starts and I'm being transformed from one degree of glory to another as I contemplate the glory of the Lord, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 318. I remember your wondrous works that you have done. I remember your miracles and you remember your covenant forever, your everlasting covenant. This is my security with you, your promise, your works, your wondrous works, your everlasting covenant. I glory in your holy name. I glory in your holy promise. I glory in your commitment that you have already died. You have already done it. You have already risen from the dead. The new creation has already begun, and I give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.